It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 417 for November 2nd, 2014. This week, Google is making Android apps available on Chromebooks. So is somebody thinking about merging the two Linux-based operating systems? The next version of Windows has been renumbered and delayed, so what will you pay for it? I'd like to think it'll be free. In short circuits, users of Apple devices get an improved versions of Microsoft's OneNote. The FTC files suit against AT&T. Facebook's profits are up, but Wall Street geniuses punish the company for not thinking about enough short-term profits and considering the graphical user interface as if it had been an automobile. Some Android apps are intended for use only on phones, and while they may function on tablets, they sometimes don't function very well. Now the folks at Google seem to be pressing developers to create Android apps that will also work on Chromebooks. What about Chrome apps on Android devices? That makes a lot of sense in some ways. The underlying operating system for both Chrome and Android is, after all, Linux. There's been more customization done to Linux for Android, but if Android apps can be created to run on both Android and Chrome devices, how likely is it that Chrome apps can be modified to run on Android tablets and phones? And might the two platforms someday be merged to create a single operating system that runs on computers, tablets, and phones? Hmm. That sounds like something Microsoft has already done with Windows 8. Google's Android operating system is based on the Linux kernel, and it's been modified for touchscreen mobile devices such as smartphones and tablet computers. There are also specialized versions for Android TV, automotive applications, and watches. And Android can be found on some game consoles, digital cameras, and certain other devices. Android is, after all, the most popular operating system. It outsells Windows on desktop, notebook, and mobile computers. It outsells iOS devices, that's Apple's mobile operating system. And it outsells OS X, Apple's desktop and notebook operating system. In fact, it outsells all of them combined. The Google Play Store has more than one million Android apps, many of which would be welcome additions on Chromebooks. Chrome is also based on the Linux kernel, but initially it was intended to be a web-powered, thin client operating system. That vision has changed over the years, and Google now requires that most applications work when the computer is offline. And by the end of this year, Chromebooks are supposed to be able to run Android apps natively. In fact, in September, Google released App Runtime for Chrome in beta, and it showed that some Android apps do work properly on a Chromebook. Android's source code has been released by Google under open-source licenses, but most manufacturers of Android devices do add some proprietary code of their own on top of the open-source OS. So if Google can push Android apps to Chromebooks, might the flow also be reversed so that Chrome apps could play on Android devices? Chrome extensions, after all, are really just browser add-ons for the Chrome browser, and if apps can be made interchangeable, might somebody at Google already be thinking about pulling a Microsoft by merging mobile and computer operating systems? 
what implications might this have for desktop computers? Most current Chrome-based computers are Chromebooks, little notebook devices, but there's no reason why Chrome can't run on a desktop system. In fact, some desktop systems do run Chrome. It's just that not a lot of them have been sold. Chrome brings relatively low-cost, decent functionality, and good durability to the notebook market. The same thing might happen in the desktop market, setting the stage for serious competition among users who need only basic computer applications, email, web browsing, documents, spreadsheets, presentations, photo management, things like that. High-end users will undoubtedly continue to need high-powered Apple or Windows systems, but that's a relatively small market when compared to the vast number of users. What will you pay for Windows 10? I was all set to ask that question about Windows 9, but then Microsoft decided that there will be no Windows 9 and they'll jump directly to 10, but not until next year. The question, however, is still a valid one, if now perhaps a bit premature, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What will Microsoft charge for Windows 10? It seems to me that if Microsoft agrees that Windows 8 and Windows 8.1 were the disasters that some pundits claimed, and I think the pundits were dead wrong on this, well, if Microsoft thinks that, then the upgrade from Windows 8 to Windows 10 should be free. It all comes down to the perception is reality school of thought. If you believe the pundits who said Windows 8 was a horrible botch, then Windows 8 was a horrible botch, even if it wasn't. But if it was, then Microsoft should do everything in its power to make up for the damage done, or not done, as the case may be. Windows 10 should be a free upgrade to any Windows 8 user. And if that happens, Windows 7 users will probably throw such a collective fit that Microsoft will be shamed into making that a free upgrade, too. And what about all the people who are still using Windows XP, even though support for that operating system ended quite a while ago? Where does it stop? A free upgrade would fly in the face of the guidebook for operating a for-profit corporation. Everything is supposed to provide income to feed the bottom line, the stockholders, and the CEO's penchant for luxury yachts. But sometimes it's better to forego some of the profit to build customer appreciation and loyalty. This might be one of those times. Microsoft is facing pressure from people who are tempted to try Apple's desktop operating system or to switch to a Chrome-powered device or even try Linux and its attendant free Office applications. Choosing to provide a free upgrade might build some long-term profitability and some stability, but at the cost of short-term profits. In other words, Wall Street would hate it because it might keep Microsoft from making its quarterly numbers once or twice. And when Wall Street doesn't like something, it punishes the company. So I don't really expect to see much in the way of a free upgrade policy, except perhaps in a very limited manner for recent buyers of systems with Windows 8. But it's nice to consider what might happen in a more enlightened world. Consider this. I have an Android tablet, and when a major update to the operating system came along, it was downloaded and installed automatically, no charge. The same is true for Apple's portable devices, the ones that run iOS. 
Of course, not all hardware is able to be updated to every new version of the operating system, but if the hardware is capable of running a new version, it will be provided at no cost. Where does that leave desktop and notebook operating systems, such as Windows and OS X? Apple's per-update fee has typically been a lot lower than Microsoft's, but then Apple releases operating system updates a lot more frequently. Over time, the costs are probably about the same. Last year's OS X update to Mavericks was free, though, as was this year's Yosemite. And despite bad-mouthing Microsoft's creation of a single operating system for all platforms, reviews of Yosemite suggest that it is a clear attempt to follow Microsoft's lead in that area. But that's another story for another time, because the current topic is all about free operating system updates. Based on what I've just described, perhaps there's a trend here. What would be the implications of free upgrades for life? In other words, when you buy a computer, you receive a license key that is good for every updated version of the operating system that can be installed on that hardware. The Android and iOS model, in other words. Yes, this would cost some short-term profits, but it would immediately eliminate one of the biggest complaints Windows users have about upgrading their operating system, and that complaint is the cost. It's likely, in fact, that the cost issue was one of the underlying causes of dissatisfaction with Windows 8. People bought it, perhaps without reading the reviews and without understanding what they were in for, and then they were surprised by the numerous changes. It's a lot harder to be angry with an update when you receive it for free. A policy like that would also reduce the built-in delay that results from requiring people to make an explicit effort to obtain a new version of the operating system. Many Linux distributions, for example, offer nearly painless updates, and as a result, most Linux users have current version operating systems. Most people buy computers every three to five years. Microsoft would, of course, lose sales to those folks who keep 10- or 12-year-old computers chugging along, but people who do that would be unlikely to pay for an operating system update anyway. What would a change like this really cost Microsoft? Maybe it's time for the bean counters in Redmond and the analysts on Wall Street to consider some alternatives. As kind of a side note, here's a question. Did Steve Jobs invent the GUI? I'm reading Walter Isaacson's The Innovators. Isaacson worked with Steve Jobs to create a superb biography of the man. In his new book, Isaacson clearly shows how the biggest advances in computing have been the result of a collaboration, or at least the result of one person seeing another person's work and then building on it. The computer and the Internet were not conjured up in a garret or garage by solo inventors, Isaacson wrote. Instead, most of the innovations of the digital age were done collaboratively. If any single group invented the GUI, and that's a big if, but if any single group invented the GUI, it's the inventors at the Xerox Palo Alto Research Center. Jobs visited Park in 1979, and he saw the GUI in action. Isaacson says he was shown many of the ideas that Alan Kay, Doug Engelbart, and all of their colleagues had developed, most notably the graphical user interface. So in December of 1979, Jobs began working on a deal with Xerox that allowed the Apple folks to study the technology in return for allowing Xerox to make a million-dollar investment in Apple. At the time, you may remember, Apple and Microsoft were partners, and Steve Jobs told Bill Gates about what he'd seen at Park. 
1981, Microsoft began designing what would eventually become Windows. Then, in November 1983, two months before the Macintosh was launched, Gates announced the development of Windows. Some still say that Microsoft stole the idea for the GUI from Apple, and that may be so. But Apple stole it first, from Parks. short circuits, Microsoft's OneNote application is essential to the way I work because it stores information I need about stories I'm working on, books I'm reading or planning to read, procedures for tasks I do very rarely, medical reminders, various documents and lists of all sorts. It works well on Windows computers and Android devices. For iPhones, iPads and Macs, it has had some shortcomings. Microsoft has just updated the application to take advantage of some iOS 8 functionality and to make it possible for Apple users to store OneNote information in the cloud. OneNote for Windows has had the ability to password protect sections of notebooks for a long time. I use it for the medical data section. Microsoft had previously added the ability for users to unlock existing password protected sections on various Apple devices but creating a new password-protected section or changing or removing a password required a Windows computer. That restriction no longer applies. Those who have touch-enabled iOS 8 devices will find that password-protected sections can be unlocked with Touch ID. Arranging notes is also easier on Apple devices, providing functionality that Windows users have had to move notes and pages by simply dragging them. Federal Trade Commission seems to have this really strange idea that if a big corporation, AT&T for example, promises something, such as an unlimited data plan, then that company should provide what it's promised. What a strange idea. As a result, the FTC is suing AT&T for severely limiting its unlimited data plans. The FTC says that the cellular carrier has been using a throttling system since 2011, a process that cuts the speed of wireless internet connections so much, in some cases, that a dial-up connection would be faster. And this doesn't happen in rare, isolated instances, the agency says, but on at least 25 million occasions, affecting some 3,500,000 AT&T customers who were paying for unlimited service AT&T, as you might expect, disagrees, calling the suit baseless. The head of the FTC, Edith Ramirez, says that AT&T promised customers unlimited data, but failed to deliver on that promise. Ramirez says the issue here is simple. Unlimited means unlimited. She says the FTC will seek financial damages that could be used to return some money to AT&T customers. The five members of the FTC voted unanimously to allow the suit to proceed, and it was filed in U.S. District Court at San Francisco. AT&T is currently trying to win approval for its plans to acquire DirecTV, the largest satellite TV provider in the country. 
The company is also in the process of paying out $105 million, the result of allowing third-party vendors to add bogus charges to cellular customers' monthly bills. AT&T made millions of dollars from that practice over a five-year period, but denied knowing that the charges it passed through to customers were bogus. The process is known in the industry as cramming. T-Mobile faced similar charges in July. Facebook beat Wall Street analysts' projections for the sixth quarter in a row, and the company's stock dropped 11% after Mark Zuckerberg announced that revenue would slow a bit. If, as the head of the company, you're not talking about short-term profits, Wall Street doesn't want to have much to do with you. Facebook shares closed at $73 after analysts learned that Facebook plans to invest in projects that will provide future value, and that the company plans to buy more companies in an effort to acquire more programming talent. Now, all that sounds like a good plan to me and probably to just about everybody, everybody except Wall Street analysts. Facebook has money today, lots of it. So Facebook will invest in things that will provide better value for its customers. Costs were up more than 40% at Facebook in the third quarter, in part because the company acquired some 1,200 new employees. Many of them worked for WhatsApp, which Facebook acquired, or for the virtual reality headset maker Oculus VR, which Facebook also acquired. Revenue increased nearly 60%, 60%, to $3.2 billion in the third quarter. Last year's figure was $2 billion. The Wall Street geniuses expected $3.1 billion, got more than they expected, and still punished the company's stock. Geniuses. Facebook has successfully positioned itself for the future by updating its mobile apps so that more than 60% of the company's advertising income is derived from ads placed on mobile devices. But investing in the future must be avoided if you want to please Wall Street. program when I talked about Windows 10, I included at the end of that piece a little bit about Steve Jobs and the graphical user interface. This reminds me that we tend to classify one person as the inventor of most things. Maybe that's because of the way history books are written. But the inventor of record may simply have finished the work first, or possibly just had a good sense of PR, but others were involved. Why do we feel a need to identify a single inventor? It's like saying Neil Armstrong invented the lunar landing. Now, he played a big part in it, of course, but so did Buzz Aldrin, the second man on the moon, and Michael Collins, who remained in orbit, along with hundreds of people at NASA and thousands of people who worked on the project. It wasn't just Armstrong. But my analogy here is the automobile. Who invented it? Some say that Henry Ford invented the automobile, and that is patently wrong. Ford may have invented the assembly line, may have, but automobiles themselves well predated Ford. 
Back in antiquity, somebody had an idea that eventually became the wheel. There were no patent attorneys then, so we don't know how many people might have simultaneously and separately thought of creating wheels. Then somebody had a better idea and hooked a platform up to a wheel, creating the first wheelbarrow. Somebody else thought of placing two wheels in tandem and came up with a cart, thus allowing chariots and movies such as Ben-Hur, starring Jack Hawkins, Hugh Griffith, Hayahara Reed, and, oh, uh, and uh, that other guy, uh, Charlton Heston. Somebody thought to mount two wheels not in tandem, but in a linear fashion, and got a bicycle. Then somebody else added a third wheel in front of the two wheels in tandem and created a tricycle. And then two sets of wheels in tandem. That worked better once somebody figured out how to allow the front set of tandem wheels to swivel. Then somebody thought it might be a good idea to hook the contraption up to an ox, or a mule, or horse. Maybe several horses. And we could put seats in the cart so that people could sit. Or more seats so that we could create a stagecoach and a whole new industry for stagecoach robbers. The internal combustion engine looked like a possible replacement for horses. That eliminated all of the horse exhaust that littered the streets, but it led to carbon emissions that threatened the planet. In my mind, the GUI is a lot like the automobile, starting with ideas in the 1800s to create a device that would aid calculations. Thousands of people had ideas along the way, many of them after seeing what somebody else had done and thinking something along the lines of, hmm... Well, that's pretty cool, but it'd be even better if I fill in the blank there. So the GUI was the result of many minds at the Palo Alto Research Center, and probably elsewhere. Steve Jobs had the good sense to recognize a killer idea when he saw it, and so did Bill Gates. Neither of them invented the GUI, but their fingerprints are there, along with those of many, many others. <laughs> Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.